Well, good morning. I wanted to give just a quick update. We are heading into our fifth year on campus, and though it's sad when students leave us, because they're only there obviously for four years, maybe five if they take a little longer, but um, one of the greatest things is to see these students and the growth that happens in their life when they leave. So I just want to share about one student. Um, his name is Austin. He graduated this past year. Reflecting on his time in RUF, one of my favorite things probably that any student has ever said to me is, I came to campus, got involved in RUF, thought the Bible was probably true. By the time I left UD, the Bible has become beautiful to me. Um, Austin is now in Colorado. He's uh, going to be an intern with RUF at Colorado State. He's going to do a two-year internship there and then plans to start seminary and would like to be ordained in the PCA. So I just want to tell you, you may not know that much about RUF. The opportunity that we have at the local university, a university like UD, is just astronomical. Students who either come to faith during that time of their life or whose faith is really brought to the center of their life, they leave ready to live in the world. They know what it means to love the church. They know the gospel. They know how to live in this world. And so it's just such a great opportunity. Um, if you don't already get our newsletters, uh, an e-newsletter, I have a sign-up. It's on the big table out there. There's also some other information about RUF if you'd like to grab that. Um, I think you'd be encouraged. So sign up. You can know what's going on, how you can pray for us. And if by chance you know anyone who's going to the ministry or, or going to UD this fall, we'd love to connect with them. Maybe you even know someone who knows someone. Uh, send them my way. Thanks. Uh, this morning we are going to be in Mark chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, uh, I'd invite you to open that to Mark chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 35 through 45. And I'll read from that in just a moment. Um, but as sort of an intro into this text, when I think about life in our world, one of the most obvious aspects of our modern world is that it's very busy, right? So I was reading a book this summer, and the author made this very good point. When we used to ask people, like, how are you doing? Hey, how's your week been? How you been? The standard response used to have been, oh, you know, it's good. I'm fine. How are you? Now the standard response is almost, I'm busy. Oh, my gosh, this past week was so busy. Um, and as a campus minister, my students are all busy. They are busy and stressed out. They stay up late. Oftentimes, they fill their schedules with too much stuff to do, too many classes, too many activities, too many clubs. And part of the reason is that is because they are afraid of missing out on life. They're afraid of not doing enough, of not being enough. I find myself living a busy life. I don't know about you when you think about yourself. Sometimes living a busy life bothers me, but then other times there's this messed up sense of pride that you can have in like, I'm this busy. That must mean I'm doing something important. It must mean maybe I'm important. What does that look like for you? In the midst of a really busy world like ours, it's easy to go through life and not ask a fundamental question like, who am I? Why am I here? What's my life to be about? What's my mission? And Mark's gospel, of all the gospels, is really helpful to us here because I think you could consider Mark the busy gospel. In all the other gospels, Matthew, uh, Luke, John, there's a lot of teaching segments of Jesus, but Mark is really Jesus in action. And so I want you to uh, consider what happened the day just before the text we're about to read. 
Uh, the day before this passage we're about to read in Mark 1, Jesus is at a synagogue. He's teaching. While he's at that synagogue, he has a dramatic confrontation with a man who has an unclean spirit, a demon. He casts the demon out. Everyone there is astonished. He then goes to Simon Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is sick. He heals her. Then following that, this same day, the whole town, the city gathers at the door of this house where Jesus is, and they are bringing him the sick and those who need healing, those who are oppressed by demons, and Jesus is ministering to them. And then we read this. Mark 1, starting verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is God's word. Here's what I think Mark wants us to see from the life of Jesus this morning. Prayer is a place where we come to know who we are, who God is, why we're here, and knowing God in and through prayer leads to mission. It leads to mission in our world. So let's just think about those two things. First, let's think about prayer, and then we'll consider the mission that flows out of prayer. So prayer. Jesus prayed, and depending on how you understand prayer, that might sound kind of weird, right? If prayer is merely us telling God things that we'd like God to do, a divine version of ordering takeout food or something like that, you know, why would Jesus pray when the Bible consistently tells us that Jesus is God? Why would he pray? But Christian prayer is not merely just calling up God with a list of requests. Biblical prayer is deeply relational. We're meant in prayer to commune with God, to receive, to give, to speak, to listen, to cry out to him, to find rest in the one who loves us. And Jesus, who was full of the Holy Spirit and who knew the riches of love and relationship that he shared with his Father from all eternity— after a day of really intense ministry, prayed. Verse 35, we read, Rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus had to get away and pray. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us that Jesus prayed. Here in chapter 1, in the middle of the gospel, in chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, and in Mark 14, the night before Jesus goes to the cross. All three occur in busy, stressful situations, and in all three, 
for Jesus, there is either implicit or explicit opposition to his mission. And we can see this from what happens next. Look at verses 36 and 37. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. This first word here, uh, uh, searched for, this is an aggressive verb. You could translate this pursued after, hunted for. They are out to get Jesus. They are trying to find him. But why? Verse 37, it says, everyone is looking for you. Or you could translate it, everyone is seeking you. And that sounds really positive at first. Seeking Jesus, that sounds like a good thing. But if you look at how this verb, this, this word is always used in Mark, it's always negative. So let me just give you a run through. Everyone is seeking you. Mary, Jesus' mothers and his brothers, they're going to do this in chapter, four, in chapter 3 when they think that Jesus has gone crazy. And the crowd will say to Jesus, your family is seeking you. The religious leaders are going to seek after a sign, and they're going to seek a way to kill him. They're going to seek to arrest him. At the end of the gospel, women are going to show up at the tomb of Jesus, seeking him, even though he is risen. But they've come because they've not fully grasped who he is and what he's done. When Mark writes about seeking with reference to Jesus, it comes from a misunderstanding of who he is his person, and his mission. You see, if you read this in that context, what the disciples want from Jesus is to keep the momentum up from the day before, to keep this good thing going. Let's capitalize on this, Jesus. Everyone is excited about what you're doing. Let's keep doing these miracles. Let's keep healing people. In a sense, the disciples and the crowd, they have a plan for Jesus's life. And it's not really that different today. At the University of Delaware, there are so many voices that seek after students. Just to give you a little clip into the lives of students. Uh, voices of influence that have a lot of social force and persuasion. Now, these things that I'm going to mention, they're not inherently bad, but things like Greek life, whether it's fraternities or sororities, athletic teams, academic departments, various clubs, almost every group on campus, they want to define students. They want to say, here, come in here. This is who you are. This is what life is about. This is what you should live for. This is what you should give yourself to. They are sought. My question is, who is seeking you? Friends? classmates, people in your family, parents, children, people in your work, the culture around us? Do you realize that you are sought after by various groups that are trying to form you into a certain mold, unto a certain understanding of yourself, unto a certain purpose? In this world, nobody gets to tell you who you are except for the God in Scripture who loves you, who created you, and who gave Jesus for you. Jesus lived in this very noisy and busy world that we live in where so many people, so many groups want a piece of us. And if Jesus, the Son of God, God in person in our world, if he had to pray, how much more do we? This text doesn't really get into 
how to pray. And really, all of Scripture guides us here. So you could turn almost anywhere. The Psalms would be a great place. Uh, the Lord's Prayer in uh, Matthew chapter 6 would be a great place. And let me just, you know, if prayer is something that you struggle with, let me direct you to Kevin or to one of the pastors here, a friend here. Ask someone, how can I grow in prayer like this? where prayer becomes this rich, dynamic relationship between me and God that helps me to know who I am and why I'm here. Through prayer, Jesus is refreshed in his identity, what he's come here to do, his mission. So let's think about that, mission. In verse 38, Jesus said, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is why he came out. This is why he's here in the flesh, in a sense. This is why the Son of God has come, not to just be a miracle worker, not to provide temporary relief from suffering, but he's here to bring the good news of the kingdom, which is not just a band-aid on this world, but will be the complete transformation of it. And I think in this next little, uh, this next little event, verses 40 through 45, we get an example of what this looks like, a picture of the mission that Jesus came to do. Verse 40, we read, and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. I don't know how familiar you are with the life of a leper, but it was a horrid existence. This contagious chronic skin disease was greatly feared, and there were great lengths that people went to to stay away from people like this. In Jesus' day, uh, we read, let me, let me uh, read from Leviticus chapter 13. This is what we read is required of lepers. Uh, Leviticus 13, 45. The leopardous person who, show, who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. Do you hear the repetition in there? You are unclean. You cannot be with other people. You cannot participate in the worship of the community. You can't be with your friends. You have to live alone. Twice in the Old Testament, it is said that a leper is healed, and in both cases, it's God who heals the leper. And probably it was for this reason that, that the rabbis of the day said that to heal a leper was as difficult as raising the dead. If you had leprosy, it meant that you lost your health, you lost your community, you lost your friends, you lost the loving embrace of those around you. The first century historian Josephus said that the banishment of lepers was in no way differing from that of a corpse. This was a living death. Now, what does Jesus do with this man? The text perhaps in front of you, if you're reading the ESV, says, moved with pity. And I think Jesus did pity him. I don't think that's necessarily wrong. If you have the more recent NIV version, you're going to be like, what is going on here? Because it says, and Jesus was indignant. He was angry. 
which is very strange. But the reason here is that there's a, there's a, in some of the manuscripts, there's a different reading. And I think actually the NIV is right. And if you want to know details, I'll spare that right now, but you can ask me later. But I think the text is saying Jesus was indignant, that he's mad. But okay, what, what does that mean? Why was Jesus angry? And if you think about it, right in front of him is a man who is the picture of the broken world that Jesus has come to deal with. He sees in this man a picture of the hopeless, sin-cursed world that he's come to transform. He comes face to face with this horrid condition, and Jesus is upset about it. And in a sense, isn't that comforting? That when God looks at the brokenness of this world, the misery of life in this world, that it upsets him? That God's not indifferent toward our suffering? But what Jesus does next is even more surprising. Verses 41 and 42, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Yikes, right? If you know anything about leprosy, that's the one thing you don't do. You don't touch a leper. If you touch a leper, then you're unclean, and the uncleanness just, just spreads. So the only thing you can do is, in a sense, try to stay away from it. And in case, I don't, I don't know, if someone's here and in case you're like, this is really, really strange, or you're thinking, man, I'm so glad that we have uh, progressed in our way of social relationships. While we don't do this necessarily in a religious, cultic sort of way, our society continues to draw the lines between insiders and outsiders, don't we? I mean, think about it in personal relationships. Honestly, don't we move away from people that exhaust us? People whose lives are just riddled with problems, and it's just easier to just, just move away a little bit? At the larger society level, I think on the one hand, it's called the suburbs. And I say this as someone from the Chicago suburbs, a suburban boy, born and raised. But in a sense, it's like we can have this nice life away from the brokenness of the world. Can we try to carve out a space where we have to see as little brokenness and misery as possible? And this is what's so unique about Jesus and what he's doing here, right? Because in our world, a lot of times it feels like there's just not enough resources we just can't do anything to fix the problems, and so we just move away and try to isolate from it. But here, Jesus involves himself directly in the brokenness, and when his life comes in contact with unclean, broken, destroyed people, instead of the brokenness coming onto him, in a sense, life flows into the other person. His cleanness, his holiness, his life passes to the other now look at how this passage ends. Jesus tells the man, verses 34, uh, 43 and 44, not to tell anyone, which I think makes sense in this context because Jesus is trying to avoid the crowds who would try to turn him into a miracle worker. He said he's, at, he's here to preach the good news. The man disobeys Jesus, and the result, verse 45, is now Jesus is in a desolate place. Do you see what has happened here? It begins, the story begins, with Jesus meeting this outcast, this outsider. Jesus heals him, and now Jesus is on the outside. This is a picture of what the whole gospel of Mark is about. 
Because what has Jesus come ultimately to do? He's come to trade places with outsiders. He's come to trade places, we could say, with disgusting people, with unclean, unholy people. And that's good news. At the cross, God's only begotten Son, the ultimate insider, you could say, with God, is crucified outside the city. He becomes forsaken. At the cross, Jesus, who is breathtakingly beautiful in holiness, as Isaiah long ago predicted, he becomes like one from whom men hide their faces. He's despised. He's rejected. Jesus trades places with us. And a Christian is someone whose life has been touched by that mercy of God in Jesus. If you're a Christian this morning, this means you've been united by faith to him. You are cleansed in him. You are restored in him. You are forgiven in him. And if that mercy has touched your life, it means that this, Jesus' mission, is also your mission. So how do we do this? Well, again, in prayer, we're rooted and grounded in the reality of who we are and God's love for us, and then we're propelled out in mission, in good, in good deeds and good word in this life, in this world. So Jesus says to his disciples, right, he says, I can't stay here. I can't be the miracle worker that you want me to be. I must go into other towns to bring the good news. And in a sense, that's our mission as well. Whether you never leave anywhere and you're just here at faith, or whether you're someone in this congregation who maybe the Lord is already at work in your heart, maybe the Lord's at work in your heart this morning to take a call to go to some foreign place where people have no access to the gospel to speak words of good news to them. Who in your life needs to hear the good news? A neighbor, a friend, a co-worker? We see also that Jesus doesn't close himself off to the brokenness of the world, but he reaches out to this world in compassion. And so we could ask the question, who in your life needs the compassionate touch of God? Who are the outcasts? Who are the lonely? Who are those whose lives have been wrecked and broken in this world, and they need the, out, the outstretched hand of the body of Christ so that they might know that the love of Christ and the love of God is real. I don't know if any of you uh, are familiar uh, with a girl named Abby Connor. Uh, this is a story from a couple years ago. Uh, she was 20 years old, uh, from Wisconsin. She was on vacation with her family in Mexico and a few years ago mysteriously drowned. When they found her, she was unconscious, face down in the pool, and by the time that she was pulled out, she had suffered irreversible brain damage. Now, Abby was an organ donor, and so they took her to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where she was kept on life support until the doctors could harvest her organs. And four of Abby's uh, organs went and resulted in saving four different people's lives. The recipient of Abby's heart was a young man from Louisiana. Uh, his name is uh, Lou Mouth Jack Jr. And this man, 21 years old, suffered a heart attack and was told that he had 10 days to live. 
but because he received Abby's heart, he's alive today. Now, a few months after Abby's death, Bill Connor, Abby's father, went on this biking tour to raise awareness of organ donation, and he established contact with this young man, Jack Jr., the recipient of Abby's heart, and he planned to stop by and meet him. So two years ago, on Father's Day, Bill met Jack Jr. Now, my question to you this morning is, if you're going to meet the father whose daughter's heart is in you, what do you give that person? What could you possibly give to that man? He brought a stethoscope with him. And there's a video where her father is weeping as he hears the heartbeat of his daughter in that man's chest. If you are a Christian, do you know that you are so united to Christ that you are in him and that he is in you? That is who you are. And there is nothing on earth that brings joy to your Father in heaven than to hear the heartbeat of his Son in and through your life. That is nourished in prayer, and it is lived in this world in mission. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for gracious words. We thank you that when you speak to us in Scripture about who we are, who we really are, and what you say about us, that it is far better than we could ever dream up. And we thank you that you give us life in and through Christ, that you made the sacrifice that we could have life. Would you help us as your body, as your church, to be people whose lives are more and more wed to the reality of who we really are, and would that change the way that we live in this world? Would you help us to do this for your name's sake, for your honor and glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.